I dag fortsätter vi för andra gång på rad vår samtale om det gröna skiftet i världens mest folkrika nation, India med 1,3 miljarder människor. Där pågår det ett grönt skifte och idag så snackar jag med ambassadör till Norge från India, Dr. B. Balabaskar och herr Erik Solheim som regnes av mange som världens klimageneral. Jag frågar dem, hur får man disse massene med sig på det gröna skiftet och India som på många måter är regnet som världens mest religiösa land. Hur får man med sig troets folk i detta? Följ väldigt gott med. Well, Dr. Bashka, thank you for this delicious Indian coffee. Thank you. I enjoy it. Now, for the green shift to actually accomplish in India, a nation of 1.3 billion human beings must have a great mobilization of the masses. Is that possible? Yeah, it is possible. Um, you know, when we uh, when there is a cyclone, a small cyclone, you might have heard about cyclone. Uh, in one night, we will shift a million people. Yeah. This is the power of mobilization in India. Our missionary, our bureaucracy is so uh, dynamic. Uh, so at time, in terms of mobilization, in terms of crisis, our strengths are unparalleled. Right? So our missionary is so geared up, then we can... Uh, these mobilizations are rising. Mobilizing one night, uh, you shift to one, one million people, and we develop, uh, we erect shelters overnight for a million people. Mm. So these are the, uh, I mean, these are the capabilities. Coming to the green shift, uh, it, it is not, um, uh, it is not, uh, uh, it doesn't require that kind of mobilization. And it is, uh, it requires uh, greater, it, it enables greater participation of people in the, in the, in the event of green shift. Because when the, in the present form of energy, it is produced in, uh, in select places. When we move to a green shift, it will be more renewable energies. The renewable energy sources are more dispersed. They are not concentrated in one place. Our solar energy, it is available everywhere, all over India. Our wind energy, there are pockets all over India. So, uh, number one, when you make a green shift, your energy uh, mobilization will be highly decentralized. Yeah. What does it mean? When it is decentralized, there will be more participation of people in the energy activity. Right? So, uh, then there will be... Uh, you know, for example, solar panels. The solar panels can be manufactured all over India by different uh, startup companies, different uh, groups can, can be involved, and then there will be a large number of micro-grids, right? It provides a greater employment, it involves people, it, uh, both in mobilization, in installation, uh, and other various other uh, forms of energy activity for example biofuels biofuels need 
lot of collection of uh, biofuels uh, wood i mean uh, the other uh, items so it involves a lot of people so green shift is um, uh, is is more uh, decentralized it involves more people it's more people centric activity so people will actually see something for themselves yeah they will see something themselves they will they they develop that sense of belongingness because it is located in various places mm. and then they are involved more so uh, it's a, it's a, uh, they admire more exactly now mr sulheim uh, i was uh, uh, shocked to the core of my being some 13 14 years ago when you as a minister of the norwegian government received me in your office uh, i as a man of faith you're also a, a person of faith uh, but i'm a conservative christian which is kind of different but you show great respect to people of faith of all kinds tell me about that well i, I realized that when it comes to the engagement emotions really low for nature uh, for very many people that comes also from uh, experience spiritual experience linked to religion many people really want to protect mother earth because they see mother earth as a creation of christian god or allah or close to the hindu gods so you, you should not underestimate religion as an inspiration for positive action and added at the time i worked a lot in africa there are lots of civil society groups in africa western model most of them frankly is an office in the capital and it will exist as long as there is funds coming from yeah, Europe. Yeah. Exactly. When there are no more funds, well, it will not exist any longer. However, if you go to the villages of Africa, everywhere you will find either Christian or Islamic or both um, uh, faiths being represented in a major way. So if you want to speak to people in Africa, uh, you cannot avoid this. And I saw a poll once from Burundi, something like 98% of all Burundians said that uh, God is a central part of my life. There was no similar poll from Norway, but it was from Sweden. Yeah. And I think it was 16% in Sweden who said the same, that God is absolutely central in my life, where close to 100% said the same in Burundi. So we need to uh, speak with respect to, and should speak with respect to everyone, for sure. Yeah. But Absolutely, yes, indeed, we should speak with and learn from faith leaders. From your many visits to India, uh, do you see that much the same faith dimension in India? Yeah, my simple view is that India is the most religious place on earth. Yeah. China is the least religious place on earth. Yeah. This has nothing to do with the present communist. This is two, three thousand years in Chinese history. Chinese were never really interested in God, interested in politics and how to create the best society <laughs> on earth. Confucius, the great Chinese teacher, it, it, it's, all about, it's all about the planet. It's nothing about the heaven. Yeah. It's all about people, nothing about God. So the Chinese has been largely with very little interest in religion. Indians to the country, religion is so close to the soul of everyone. Mm. And it's very, very hard to distinguish the great Hindu traditions and of course later the Islamic traditions from, from
from the soul of India. You find temples absolutely everywhere. And the great Indian stories, the founding stories of India, the Vedas, the, uh, <coughs> the, the Marabis, all these, are of course so much linked to Hinduism that you cannot distinguish it. There are some big differences between Hinduism, which is the main religion in India and Christianity. I mean, there is no church in Hinduism, nothing like the Catholic Church, yeah. a very, very strong organizational apparatus covering the world, nothing like that. And there's nothing like a very strict scripture which you need to follow. Yeah. Gandhi said that you can be atheist, <laughs> you can believe in one million gods, so you can believe that all Hindu yeah. gods come together so, yeah. in one, you can still, you're still a Hindu. Uh, so th there is a difference, but the Hindu traditions are very close to nature. Exactly. Think of the following, I mean, two of the main gods are, ha I mean, Hanuman is a monkey and still a god. Uh, Ganesh is a half human, half elephant, uh, uh, one of the key gods in Hinduism. And of course the river Ganga uh, is the holy river of Hinduism and so much linked to Shiva. Shiva may be coming down from the Himalaya mountains and making this fantastic mm. river of the Ganga. So you cannot distinguish between Hindu traditions and Indian nature. Mm. So of course to protect that nature will be a calling for, for many Hindus. Exactly. And I'm working closely with two modern-day gurus. One is Sri Sri Ravi Shankar in uh, Bangalore, mm -hmm. and the other is a person called Sadhguru uh, in uh, southern, southern city of Kambatore. This year, Sadhguru will embark upon a huge global tour. He will start going by motorbike from London to Delhi through numerous European countries with one mission, to bring attention to the issue that we need to protect the soil. Because yeah. if we destroy the soil, we will have no agriculture mm -hmm. and we cannot live. And there is so much pollution and destruction of soil. And Salguru, well, I think he has 3 million followers on, uh, on Twitter. He has millions of followers. He put up an enormous, beautiful Shiva temple in the city of Kambator, mm -hmm. which has dragged attention from all over India. And his ambition is to get 3.5 billion people globally to speak about soil, inspired by his tour. Mm. So while, yes, indeed, religion is a matter for the individual, but also some of these Hindu leaders and or leaders in the Hindu tradition can speak to enormous amount of people and get them to start acting. Yeah. That, that's an inspiration yeah. for the rest of the world, I would yeah. think. Even he the is Christian very world. inspirational, very inspirational. And so is Sri Sri Ravishankar. He has also mil millions of followers. Mm. I'm on the board of his uh, university in the city of Bhubaneswar, Sri Sri University there. And they got, just got a lot of prizes as one of the best universities in India. And they even got prizes as one of the best universities in the world in some specific categories. And that's linked to... It's not a, like a Christian school where there is a strong message, but it's interwoven with this Hindu culture. No, to add to what uh, Mr. Eric Solem said, that within the family there can be many religions. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that you know religion is uh, uh, a subject of certain uh, region or uh, you know communities. Within the family there can be religions. Each person may have a different god, right? Yeah. Different uh, uh, faith. So then there is another aspect as uh, he mentioned that it's a more of a spiritual outlook in the religion. It's not like the many people gather. They gather not to 
propagate religion or to they gather as a as a spiritual experience they gain that spiritual yeah. uh, seeking spiritual enlightenment spiritual experience mm. and uh, uh, understanding more of uh, nature appreciate mm. uh, you know the the sources of uh, life like rivers mm. you know many people go and take dip in rivers though they just want to purify themselves to deal with the nature and show gratitude in it's a different kind of uh, uh the way of thinking you know and it shows again what aristotle said about the proximity to nature yeah. the appreciation defense of nature yes now because uh, at the end of the day all major religions are close to nature, nature because people yeah. by i mean humans throughout history has been close to nature i mean think of jesus christ and yeah. he walked around this relatively small <laughs> lake of galilee in in palestine mm. I where were the fishermen there who yeah. spoke went up in the mountains to speak and the early days the cross was not the main christian symbol like fish was some yeah. earlier christian symbol exactly uh, the tree which means the fig tree in the bible so it's a strong symbol so all religions come with this look on nature you just need to look for it and uh, I'm, i'm asking now uh, i heard that there are green efforts in farming in india Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean it's in fact in his home state of Andhra Pradesh where we have been supporting a program there which has transferred transfer 1 million farmers but with families that's more than 5 million people not Norwegian population into what's called zero budget farming with the support of course of the chief minister of that state and that is using no fertilizer using no pesticides and the revenue goes up they make more money the yield is increasing because they used all the residues from agriculture into fertilizer for the next crop and of course also uh, what the cows and other animals live after them is again used so this has proven a huge success and the aim is to make all 6 million farmers 30 40 million people in andhra pradesh into this green uh, green farming and prime minister modi has also set this out as a ambition for india to move in that direction that must be encouraging yes yes you know as um, as he mentioned the green shift basically has three segments the first one is electricity generation the second one is the transport sector and the third aspect is the industrial sector yeah right and industrial and agriculture when i say industry means it includes uh, production of fertilizers you know first of all uh, we will see the way there is a campaign as uh, his excellency mentioned to to uh, to to have a farming without fertilizers in case you have to use fertilizers then the fertilizers also have to take a shift towards a green uh, fertilizers you know this is another huge challenge and then uh, industries the industry at some point we have to all the industries uh, steel industry cement industry they all have to shift towards uh green shift so once that shift takes place then then uh, the the farming also becomes uh, part of that green shift so it's a uh, uh, we are making a uh, huge efforts in this direction and uh, now new new agriculture technique uh, techniques are coming new farming techniques are developed and then the campaign as he mentioned is being uh, started in fact uh, even a norwegian company 
Yara is also playing very important role in that uh, uh, green shift. So uh, it is a, as I mentioned, it is a collective effort. The world has to join hands in uh, in undertaking this uh, shift uh, in a more effective and uh, um, accelerated manner. Must be exciting for you, uh, uh, Mr. Amb Dr. Ambassador, for representing a country which is so steeped into this positive development. Yes, it is a great uh, privilege and honor and uh, uh, many people uh, uh, ask us, you know, India is such a big country, so many languages, how do you, such a diverse country, how do you manage as a diplomat? I tell them, you know, because the our biggest strength is our diversity. Yeah. Because of the diversity of the country, our personality is, development is also more moderate and uh, more uh, understanding, has, has the ability to appreciate rest of the world, other cultures, other traditions. So uh, when I go to any country, it is easily, we are easily adaptable because I am I'm a foreigner both in India and abroad. It doesn't make any difference <laughs> because, <laughs> because my neighbor can be speaking different language. Right? He may have a different, uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, habits, tradition. So I'm anyway foreigner even in India. So when I go abroad, I mean, it makes no difference. That's why Indians are uh, successful everywhere in the world. Yes. Because they immediately uh, get integrated. They appreciate the cultures. They appreciate the traditions. They understand the sensitivities of various uh, ethos, cultures. So, and then... Uh, that's why they are also respected all over the world. So if Indian diaspora is doing very well, if you think that they are well respected, that purely, the primarily because they experience diversity since their birth. Exactly. And say so they, 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 they inculcate the quality of tolerance from childhood. So that takes them to uh, everywhere they go and make them successful. So tolerance to different cultures, tolerance to different traditions, tolerance to different religions, different uh, you know climates is uh, central to Indian uh, you know uh, thought process. Exactly. Indians are now the richest group in the United States of America. Um, Indian Americans. Wow. They make more money than the traditional white. Uh, American population, and they're by far the most successful wow. uh, group. And also Norway, of course, Indians are among the most successful uh, people here, mm -hmm. doing well in business, making lots of money, mm -hmm. doing well in universities, mm -hmm. in basically every way. Right by my office on the main street, Karl Johan in Oslo, is a new in Indian restaurant, the mas Masala Politics. So I, I need to invite you both to have lunch with me there one day. Yeah. We'd love to come and we know, we know very well the owner, both of us, oh, yeah. both his thing. So you can yeah. give me a, 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 a rebate, right? Yeah. <laughs> For sure, he would love to have you. <laughs> now, um, I, I heard also, uh, Mr. Solheim, you of course are on boards in uh, so many sectors in India. Uh, even uh, electric buses are being produced in India today. Yeah, that was um, the very positive experience. I, I'm a very good friend of Aditya Thakurai. He's the third generation of the Thakurai dynasty, which is, has been ruling or played a key role in the state of Maharashtra for the last 50 years. Maharashtra, by the way, is one and a half time Germany, so it's 
it's not a small, it's not a small place, 120 million there. But they have decided he is really a pioneer. He's one of the youngest and best politicians in India, really taking the state in a in a green direction. And he has now decided that they will have all buses will be electric. But what I was very happy to see was that this is linked to production of the buses in India. Mm. While I'm also a big fan of what's happening in China, mm. but of course it's not a good situation if all electric buses in the world are imported from China. Yeah. India needs jobs for Indian people exactly. in India. And then Tata, which is the big historical company in, in India, has now started production of electric buses in Pune, another uh, well-developed industrial city in, in southern or central uh, and India. And the population actually dare enter those electric buses. Yeah, they love it for sure. <laughs> but I mean, you have now two wheelers, three wheelers. I mean, three wheelers you don't have in Europe, it is rickshaws. Yeah. They are now largely electric or big scale electric. You have a starting of two of electric cars. And you also see more and more states going into electric uh, buses. So this is ha happening fast, and it will also develop a stronger auto industry in India itself. Now, Ambassador uh, Dr. Baska, uh, you and Eric Solam have described a, really a fascinating, exhilarating development in India. But what about the neighboring nations, sir? Uh, we have Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, Bhutan, Pakistan, mm -hmm. uh, Sri Lanka, and perhaps more nations. Yeah, you know, whatever uh, developments, uh, I mean, kind particularly in the technological arena, the neighboring countries uh, uh, take uh, India as a role model in the sense that whatever uh, developments that take place, they will try to adapt them. And uh, we are, uh, you know, we have a, we have a policy called um, uh, actist policy. You know, we, we have an active engagement with the countries uh, in the East. We have a separate arrangement with the SARC countries under SARC mechanism. There are several programs, uh, exchange of ideas, programs that are taking place for co cooperation and collaboration in the SARC countries. And as part of the Act East, uh, Act, uh, East uh, policy, we have extensive we have a wide range of mechanisms for extensive cooperation in various segments. So uh, we we are, as I mentioned, you know, we believe in uh, we don't believe in uh, uh, in in a, a development in isolation. We want the development along the rest of the world. Yeah. Obviously, our neighborhood is uh, closest to us, you know, and they are part of the world. They are the closest part of the world. So we have that uh, uh, special uh, connotation, special uh, uh, support for all these uh, countries. So uh, we, we believe that uh, the, uh, particularly in the backdrop of Corona, we believe that the world cannot uh, be in isolation, world cannot develop in uh, isolation. That is why when, when there was a Corona, we ourselves had problems, our people were affected, but then we believe that we, we, with the concept of uh, world as one family, we simultaneously exported whatever medicines we had. Uh, at that time, there were no clarity on what kind of uh, uh, disease it was. And, but we had certain medicines, which at that point of time, doctors believed that they will be effective in controlling corona. So we immediately exported to more than 50, 60 countries. Then even vaccines, when our companies uh, developed vaccines, 
uh, the first doses went to various countries, more than 60-70 countries. Uh, we have exported uh, uh, vaccines, we have exported medicines, not, not even not exported, I'm sorry. We have uh, donated, we yeah. have contributed, including our neighborhood, uh, including countries in Africa, all over the world, in Latin America, wherever where people want our help, we were readily available even at the cost of our own uh, people sometimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, Indians, as I mentioned, they appreciate, you know, they have this worldview. While, so they appreciate, you know, even if they are deprived, we give the world and is widely appreciated. So this is uh, our policy, you know, uh, as uh, His Excellency mentioned, this world as one family, as Vasudeva Kutumbukam, we call it in Sanskrit. That policy has been continuously guiding from time immemorial to now, and I'm sure even in future it will guide. Uh, Your Excellency, Mr. Eric Solheim, you are one of the greatest friends of India, uh, as per the letter you received from Prime Minister Modi. Do you have hope for the future of India? Absolutely. Uh, I believe India will be an absolute dominating part of the world in this century, because before the Industrial Revolution, India was much more developed than Europe. Before the Brits came there, uh, Indian economy was about 25% of the global economy. When the Brits left after colonialism, India was 2% wow. of the global economy. But India is now, now recovering very fast, uh, as China is also doing. And you will see a much more self-confident, stronger, more prosperous India. Truth, India still have huge problems. There are still far too many very poor people in India. They need to be brought into uh, the modern uh, society, and, but it, it's happening at a, at a high, high speed. As I said in an earlier program, first time I came to India, I was scared by the poverty I saw. There were so many beggars and it was really, really... Uh, from a, when you came from Norway, it was a very tough experience. When you go to India today, you see a very different society, much more modern, much more developed, a big middle class. But of course, everyone needs to come on board. And there are big differences in India. In general terms, southern India is much more developed, much less poverty than some other parts of northern India. So the whole of India needs to develop very fast, but it's happening. This year, in all likelihood, India will have the highest economic growth of any nation in the world. And all this helps, brings people out of poverty and into a much, much better life. Uh, and then India has so much to contribute to the world. And of course, it's completely crazy in the Security Council of the United Nations. India is not a member, soon to be the population-wise biggest country in the world, while two relatively small European nations are members of the Security Council, because this need to shift, this need to change, obviously. Dr. Baskai, Your Excellency, are you encouraged by your friend, Eric Solheim? Yes, very much. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, first of all, um, um, we treat, uh, we have a, also another sloka as a, a philosophy called Atidi Devo Bhava, means we feel that the guests are our gods, right? So we always uh, uh, respect foreigners. We respect, uh, uh, you know, foreign cultures, foreign traditions, as 
you know we respect in india and then secondly india is uh, uh, what are the other strengths of india as i mentioned of course uh, is a is a very most diverse country in the world but india's uh, uh, india is the biggest democracy see in the democratic process you can you may not you th there is no way you can go back you yeah. may not go forward the way that you desire but there is no way you can go back yeah that is the biggest advantage secondly we have a well developed institutions yeah. you know we have a institution each institution is autonomous independent each organization has a reasonable autonomy our independent judiciary you know people can come and then they uh, they seek justice like any other citizen in india right so these are the strengths and as uh, he mentioned it's a big country is uh, it's not easy to govern country of 1.3 billion it's yeah. full of challenges and but our our uh, population is a challenge but we are we are not uh, apologetic about that we want to convert that challenge into opportunity so we want to then uh, you know make every citizen empowered and so that they can make a greater contribution not only to ourselves but also to the rest of the world so i think uh, uh, india has a great future as uh, people are you know when when uh, when you are integrated well in the world you are part of the bigger world so that is that itself is a very great uh, strength and then uh, Uh, india is also land of opportunities as i mentioned in the energy sector itself you have a trillion dollar investment opportunities in the coming 10 years then there similarly there are different areas you know this is a huge population is also a huge market a huge opportunity for investments huge opportunity for uh, uh, trade uh, so i mean uh, there can't be uh, better uh place of opportunities than india in, in times to come well thank you so much uh your excellency dr b balabeska ambassador of india to norway thank you so much your excellency mr eric solheim uh the climate general of the world uh for uh, being on my show for these two episodes giving hope to many people around the world and showing the way through the lenses of uh india the love your love lenses for india thank you so much and god bless india and god bless you both thank you for thank, having us thank you so much for for uh, giving us this opportunity